This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Friends of the Rockney cast, for this podcast, we're going to explore the life of Nelson Mandela one of the greatest men of the 20th century. As many of you know, Nelson Mandela was the first president of South Africa following the fall of apartheid, the system that was set in place to elevate whites and discriminate against blacks. There was one man that stopped apartheid, and of course there were many, but Nelson Mandela played a key role in transforming his country from one of the most evil, racist states in the world to a dynamic beacon of hope and a multicultural democracy. So for this cast, we're going to explore what were the qualities of Nelson Mandela, what allowed him to persuade the whites that were in charge to voluntarily turn over power, or at least allow people of color to compete for power, And what made him such a powerful leader? Because as we'll discuss in this podcast, we're going to explore and try to learn some of the lessons from South Africa and try to apply them to our own country. Because whether we like it or not, South Africa does share a lot in common with this country, and we can still learn those lessons. Nelson Mandela was many things. He was a lawyer. He was a freedom fighter. He was a criminal defendant, he was a prisoner, he was a revolutionary, a husband, a father, he was all of those things. But for me, what made him most powerful was his role as a peacemaker, a peacemaker with toughness, who combined an iron fist with an equal ability for magnanimity and forgiveness. Those two qualities are rarely seen in one and the same leader. And we're also going to hear some clips of his first interview with Ted Koppel um, after he was released from prison. We're going to hear a part of the famous speech that he gave um, while he was in on trial in South Africa in the early 60s. And we're also going to hear a passage from my hero, Robert F. Kennedy, on a speech that he gave in South Africa in 1966. So stay tuned. We have a lot of great things in store for the sixth episode of the Rockney cast. And this one is going to be on Nelson Mandela. The first question I think we need to explore when we assess and evaluate the life of Nelson Mandela is the why question. You know, I'm not the only one who's a huge fan of Nelson Mandela. There's probably 7 billion other people who share my opinion. Many of you know that he was the first president of South Africa, that he led a freedom movement in the early 60s, and that he spent 27 years wrongfully convicted in a South African prison. But I think it's very important that we ask ourselves, why is he so important And what can we learn from him in our own age? Well, I think the first thing we need to assess and just sit and reflect on 
is how he was able to do it. Think about this, people. He was a prisoner in 1990 after serving 27 years in prison. Four years later, he was president of South Africa. How was he able to achieve that? I don't know about you, but growing up in the 80s, I remember seeing this grainy black and white photograph of Nelson Mandela. No color photos existed. The only photos were of Nelson Mandela prior to the time that he was incarcerated in 1964. And I always asked myself, who was that man? Who was he? He almost seemed like he was unreal, like he was a figure from another world. And many of us in the 80s never thought it would be possible to transform apartheid into a multicultural democracy. South African whites, of course, um, were a minority in South Africa. They always were. But the South African government was very militant. They had an advanced military. They had huge amounts of natural resources. And although they were the bait noir of the world, they found just enough support in terms of other countries to still maintain an iron grip on power. And not only that, I think that at some point they were such a bad regime that I think they really feared, well, what would happen if all of a sudden we would let go? Would we then become oppressed? So they had evil coupled with fear, coupled with arrogance, coupled with their belief that this is the only way things could ever be. And no one thought it would ever be possible to transform this racist state into a beacon of hope and multicultural democracy without a total and complete bloodbath. And there was one person who did feel that it was possible, and his name was Nelson Mandela. And here's why I love Nelson Mandela. He combined absolute toughness with a heart of gold. He was a peacemaker who persuaded the white South African government to voluntarily give up power. How on earth did he do that? And why is it so important that we learn the lessons of Nelson Mandela? Well, here is the why question. Of all the countries in the world that has struggled with racial prejudice and strife, what is the one country that is the most similar to the United States in its history, in its makeup, and in its segregation? It would be South Africa. And before you get worked up about whether I'm correct or not, I want you to listen to this little speech that was given by Robert F. Kennedy when he toured South Africa in 1966. It's called the Day of Affirmation speech. It's been colloquially referred to now as the Ripple of Hope, another inspiring RFK special. And if you can go to YouTube, you can hear the whole thing. It was given at the University of Cape Town in South Africa on June 6th. 1966, and here is the opening segment of that speech. 
Mr. Chancellor, Mr. Vice Chancellor, <laughs> Professor Robertson, Mr. Diamond, Mr. Daniel, and uh, ladies and gentlemen. I come here this evening because of my deep interest and affection for a land settled by the Dutch in the mid-17th century, then taken over by the British and at last independent, a land in which the native inhabitants were at first subdued, but relations with whom remain a problem to this day, a land which defined itself on a hostile frontier, a land which has tamed rich natural resources through the energetic application of modern technology, a land which was once the importer of slaves and now must struggle to wipe out the last traces of that form of bondage. I refer, of course, to the United States of America. Isn't he just spot on there? And by the way, if you ever get the chance to watch or to listen to the Ripple of Hope speech, listen to it. You know how much I love Robert F. Kennedy. Um, he combines his love of the Greek poets, the philosophers, pure idealism and passion and purpose. And of course, you know how wonderful he was, especially later in his life because of the fifth Rockne cast, um, his work on racial justice and reconciliation. But when we look at what our country faces today, what is one of the greatest things that I think that we are addressing is our complete denial or our unwillingness to recognize the legacy that we have of racism. Of course, most of us recognize that the Southern Jim Crow segregation was wrong and obviously slavery, everyone will at least state that they agree that it's totally evil. But there's a lot of people that say, oh, well, that's already in the past. We passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and everything's great. But of course, it's not great. And it's that unwillingness to recognize our own similarity, as Robert F. Kennedy did, before we criticize other countries, we need to look at our own history of racism in this country that we continue to fail to address. And I think it's important, Robert F. Kennedy recognized it, because it's doubly important, because I think we can learn from South Africa and leaders like Nelson Mandela. It's not just a history lesson. It is something that can help transform our own country to provide more opportunity. And so what made Nelson Mandela such a powerful figure? Well, at least for me, what makes him so compelling is his utter conviction and his willingness to risk it all to elevate people of all races. So often in our own country, we got a lot of Facebook revolutionaries, we have a lot of Twitter revolutionaries. In fact, we have even people that, you know, march in the streets, and I very much admire all the messages that are there. But Nelson Mandela took it to an even higher level. How many causes are you willing to sacrifice your own life in the cause of racial justice and equality and opportunity for all? Where he was unwavering in his support of the people who 
were entitled to rightfully participate in the South African economy and political process. And friends, he also was not a pure pacifist either, even though I love him as a peacemaker. Early on in his career, he came to the conclusion that he couldn't only achieve revolution peacefully. He had to engage in acts of armed sabotage. I think that's important that we keep that in mind as we look at Nelson Mandela, the complete picture. And before you point a finger at him and condemn him for that, every country is at some point founded in revolution. He ultimately believed the South African state could not be overthrown peacefully. And so in the early 60s, he did, and he was very open about this, he did engage an act of armed sabotage, and he was in the process of trying to recruit a revolutionary army to overthrow the South African government. And that was what he was actually convicted for. But as you listen to this speech, it's from the Ravonia trial. It's, a very, it's one of the most famous speeches in South African history. He gives a speech that to this day gives me chills because what does he do here? He is offering an utter moral justification for the acts that he took. But he is also offering a clear path to peace for his oppressor, the white apartheid state. He is combining the iron fist with a very clear olive branch to this state. And what does he do as soon as he's released from from prison? 27 years later, he cites that speech that he gave and that you're about to hear. It's only three minutes long. Sit back and absorb this segment of the famous speech from Nelson Mandela's Rivonia trial. Our fight is against fear and not imaginary hardships, or to use the language of the state prosecutor, so-called hardships. South Africa is the richest country in Africa, and could be one of the richest countries in the world, but it is a land of extremes and remarkable contrasts. The whites enjoy what may well be the highest standard of living in the world, whilst Africans live in poverty and misery. Poverty goes hand in hand with malnutrition and disease. The incidence of malnutrition and deficient diseases is very high amongst Africans. The incidence of infant mortality is one of the highest in the world. 
the lack of human dignity experienced by Africans is the direct result of the policy of white supremacy. White supremacy implies black inferiority. Legislation designed to preserve white supremacy entrenches this notion. I have dedicated my life to this struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the idea of a democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an idea for which I hope to live for and to see realized. But my Lord, if it needs be, it is an idea for which I am prepared to die. I get chills listening to that speech. Listen to its pure power. What I love about that is, is he is willing to put his life on the line. And he's talking about the ideals for which he is striving. He is offering a roadmap to peace. This is his olive branch. This is his statement to that state that you will have democracy and peace only if you extend it to all rather than keeping it for yourselves. And it's an ideal for which he is prepared to die. Listen to its toughness, its power, its inspiration. And then when he gets out of prison, 27 years later, he quotes that very same speech. And four years later, in 1994, he's elected president of South Africa without firing a shot. That's incredible. And so it's his role as a peacemaker, I think, is what absolutely makes him one of the best leaders ever. And oftentimes when we think about being a peacemaker, that is avoiding armed conflict, avoiding violence, does that make you weak? No. He is powerful. And he was a warrior. He was a warrior for peace. And think about this. When he came out of prison in 1990, he immediately was interviewed by Ted Koppel. And he was asked a series of questions about 
whether the government should be supporting sanctions against South Africa. And Nelson Mandela just absolutely crushes Ted Koppel. And I, I don't know if many of you remember, most of you probably remember Ted. I think he's still alive now. But he's sort of an arrogant SOB. And he's just, it's just child's play for Nelson Mandela to put Ted in his place. So sit back, drink a cup of coffee, and enjoy this takedown of Ted Koppel. Why are you so insistent, Mr. Mandela? And then we'll go to a question at this microphone over here. <clears throat> Why are you so insistent upon maintaining sanctions at a time when it can be argued that the South African government has made more concessions, your release being only one of them, than it has ever made in the past 40 years? I should know better about this matter, Mr. Coppel, than you. <laughs> no doubt. After all, it is the ANC, not the government, that is responsible for the present talks. We have been hammering the government since 1986 to meet us, and in spite of the humiliating and insulting conditions they tried to impose on us before they could agree to meeting us, we nevertheless had sufficient patience and sufficient commitment to peace as to continue hammering them to meet us. They have eventually done so, but despite the fact that the talks are now uh, on, apartheid is still in place. The police are still killing our people, as they've done over the years. Vigilante groups are openly arming themselves for the specific purpose of attacking progressive groups and progressive leaders. The right wing is also arming itself openly, and they say they are doing so for the purpose of destroying the ANC. They are calling for some of us to be hanged. Why would you think that we should now relax our strategies? What has happened? So what's going on here? I mean, I think this is a perfect illustration of Mandela's power. How was he able to get that South African state to voluntarily agree to elections? Well, it was in part because of that iron leadership that he demonstrated just there. You know, he listens to Ted Koppel spout off about sanctions and that you should give in, but he said, no, this isn't the time when you take your foot off the gas. This is when you put the pressure on and you keep upping the ante. Because although he was nonviolent, sanctions at the time were extremely effective in pressuring the South African government. And I don't know if you, many of you realize that there was also a huge defestment movement for people and institutions not to invest in South Africa. So he understood at a fingertip level what was necessary and what needed to be done. And you just see how he just didn't back down at all. Can you imagine being on the negotiating table with Nelson frickin' Mandela? I love that toughness and I love that iron will. But we're also going to explore another topic and another segment from that interview. Nelson Mandela 
The other thing that I think made him incredible was is that he didn't back down from unpopular ideas. At the time, this is still 1990, the Soviet Union had not fallen until 1991. Um, communism was still a very much of a dirty word. Um, there was a lot of fear of people like Fidel Castro in the United States at the time. Um, we had had conflict with Muammar Gaddafi, and, uh, who was the president of Libya and was public enemy number one for a while in the United States in the late 80s. Um, he also had support, the ironclad support, of Yasser Arafat. And there was probably no more sensitive political topic than the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It was then, it, it remains now. But one of the things I love him as a politician is why does everyone hate politicians? Is that they make these equivocal answers. They don't say what they think. They're not willing to stand up for principle and, and what they really actually believe. And this questioner asked Nelson about how he can accept support from people like Fidel Castro and Muammar Gaddafi and Yasser Arafat. And what does he do? Does he back down at all? No. Listen to what Nelson Mandela does and how he responds in reply to this question. One of the mistakes which some political analysts make is to think that their enemies should be our enemies. that we can and we will never do. We have our own struggle, which we are conducting. We are grateful to the world for supporting our struggle. But nevertheless, we are an independent organization with its own policy. And the attitude of every country towards our attitude towards any country is determined by the attitude of that country to our struggle. Yasser Arafat. Colonel Gaddafi, Fidel Castro, support our struggle to the hilt. There is no reason whatsoever why we should have any hesitation about hailing their commitment to human rights as they are being demanded in South Africa. Our attitude is based solely on the fact that they fully support the anti-apartheid struggle. They do not support it only in rhetoric. They are placing resources at our disposal for us to win the struggle.
That is the position. Mr. Mandela, you've, uh, you've said a number of very controversial things in that last response, and I'd like to come back to some of them when we return, but once again, we have to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. Thank you. The Couple Report will continue in a moment. So what makes this segment by Nelson Mandela and his response so compelling? It's that he doesn't back down at all. He stands up for principle. He does not run away from Fidel Castro and Muammar Gaddafi and Yasser Arafat. He stands with them no matter how unpopular they were in the United States at that time. And he also talks about, you know, look, if you're going to talk about the internal affairs of another country, then, you know, essentially those that live in glass houses should not throw stones. I mean, I'm not going to bring up your problems that you have in terms of race. And he, of course, was spot on. So we have this incredible toughness as demonstrated by the campaign that he made in the early 60s to engage in armed sabotage against the South African state. The iron will to face death, to stand up for his principles. The incredible way in which he addressed very tough questions about controversial topics and stands true to his principles, even at a time where, who knows, maybe his advisors said, hey, maybe you should back off on your statement about Fidel Castro. No, he was not going to do it. He was going to stand up on principle. So this is in the early 90s. Four years later, he's president. Well, here's just what makes him even more incredible. What does he do? I mean, of course, once the South African state decided they were going to give blacks the right to uh, vote, white supremacy is over at that point. But what does he do after this point? He wins. He destroys apartheid. What does he do? He engages in incredible peacemaking and forgiveness. And he presides over something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is people could get immunity from crimes that occurred during this evil period, but they had to come clean. They had to tell the truth. He viewed this as a confession. You got to come clean. You got to admit what you did was wrong. And as part of that, there was also reconciliation. And this may be some of the harder parts of the lessons of Nelson Mandela, because I think we live in an era now where we don't agree that forgiveness should occur. We live in a call-out culture, and a culture in which we have to destroy everyone. We have to call people out. We have to talk about how evil they are. In fact, recently there was even a case where someone didn't even want to go into a restaurant because the restaurant owner appeared with the Republican governor of the state of Iowa. Friends, we we cannot function as a culture this way. We cannot function as a society. We have to learn how to forgive. And ultimately, in terms of what drove Nelson Mandela, he realized that revenge, although it must have been incredibly hard for him not to seek his own revenge, for the evil that that system had perpetrated against him. But what does he do? He seeks forgiveness and he forgives the state. And not only that, he even embraces certain institutions. Once he won, he even went to, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie um, Invictus, 
about the white South African rugby team that was one of the most unpopular in the world, but very popular among white people in South Africa. What does he do? Instead of tearing down that particular symbol, he puts on a Springboks shirt. That's the name of the rugby team. He supports them. He roots for them. And he took a lot of heat for that. A lot of times, a lot of people, including his own wife at the time, Winnie Mandela, were saying, hey, you're more worried about forgiveness and reconciliation than you are about your own people. So he took heat for that. But did you see that being in a spirit or acting in a spirit of reconciliation did not make him weak? It was a sign of his strength. And frankly, I don't think there's really any other path forward we have in our own country. We must pursue reconciliation. We must, though, confess the crimes of white supremacy and openly and honestly acknowledge that. And finally, we must account in tangible payment reparation for the crimes of racism and slavery that have occurred in this country. Reparations was part of this process. Um, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission granted individual immunities to various people, but in exchange, they had to give testimony. They had to come clean over some very painful things and detailed torture, bombings, and assassinations um, before it issued its final report in October of 1998. It was essentially a two-year process, but it also included a recommendation for uh, reparations that ultimately culminated in a one-time payment of $85 million dollars um, to individual victims of apartheid in, in 2003. An article that I'll encourage you to read is in, uh, by Areshni Nadu Silverman about what South Africa can teach the U.S. about reparations, June 25th of 2019. And she really outlines, again, these just distinct parallels between the South African state and the United States. And she really talks about the process that they went through. And what's really one of the saddest things in our own country is that, you know, I think if we do an inventory, a true inventory, we have made progress. I, I think for people that say that we haven't, we have. But after the Civil War, I mean, so you think about this, the first 250 years of the United States was based upon slavery. The wealth that was created is undeniable by people that were enslaved by white people. And after the Civil War, which of course ended slavery, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Many of you know that. But I don't know if many of you know how bad his subsequent president was, Andrew Johnson. This was a slave owner and a racist who presided over the reconstruction of the United States for the first approximately four years of reconstruction, which is generally the period defined as between 1865 and 1877, where the, the country rebuilt after the Civil War. He fought against the 14th Amendment, which granted equal protection to people of color. He fought against the 15th Amendment, which granted and ensured and enshrined the right to vote. Um, he did get through, obviously, the 13th Amendment um, that banned or abolished slavery, but you could not have had a more ill-equipped person to preside over the first four years after the Civil War. And so, Many promises were made to people of color in that area in terms of tangible economic benefits that were never delivered. There was some early progress in voting and political participation, but that was yanked away in the famous Compromise of 1877, in which 
there was essentially a deal. Most historians believe there was a deal that there was a campaign between the Republican Rutherford B. Hayes and the Democrat Samuel Tilden that was basically gridlocked in 1877. And many believe that in exchange for breaking up this gridlock, the Republican administration of Rutherford B. Hayes agreed to withdraw troops from the South, paving the way for Jim Crow and oppression against peoples of color. And that basically, and Grant, Ulysses Grant, by the way, I'm going to do a podcast about Ulysses Grant here soon, did a relatively decent job, but Ulysses had a lot of things on his plate. He was dealing with what was going on on the frontier. Um, There was a lot of Indian wars going on at that particular time. Uh, There was a crisis in 1873. His administration was beset by scandal. Um, He did some early uh, aggressive measures in the South um, to to ensure civil rights for people of color. But, you know, he was there for eight years and he just did not get it done. And so after that famous compromise, we have 100 years of apartheid in the United States, Jim Crow in the South. So in the South, you had legal de jure segregation, very similar to what happened in South Africa. And in the North, you know, we pat ourselves on the back on the North. We didn't have de jure or by law segregation. We had de facto. And I think if anything in the, in the, I always think of King's letter from the Birmingham jail where he talks about the white moderate. Hey man, we whites here in the North, we're totally blind to the suffering of people of color and we're in total denial. And I'll go after myself more than anyone else. I I like to think of myself as very progressive on matters of race, but of course I have my own blind spots. We all do as white people. So this is the story of our country and we've never really had reconciliation. And we still have all this grieving and pain over the legacy of slavery the lack of economic opportunity, and the continuing oppression against people of color. So what is the path forward? Of course, some people want to start Civil War II, um, maybe engage in acts of violence, but I, I think that the only path forward is the path that Nelson Mandela took, which is to recommend a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, One of the things that is very exciting that's recently happened in the city of Iowa City due to a lot of advocacy on the part of Black Lives Matter is we're going to have one of the very first Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in the state of Iowa. And we may have one of the first Truth, Reconciliation, and Reparations Commissions in the state of Iowa as well as the nation. So I think that would be incredible if we could do that. Now, what's going to be the scope of this Truth and Reconciliation Commission Well, I hope that it can be a historical fact-finding, number one. And number two, I hope it can address structural inequity um, that occurs in the community due to racism. And three, I'm hoping it can outline and call for a form of reparations. Now, in terms of what that exactly is going to look like, um, I defer to the people that actually put that into place. But I I think that that's going to be very, very important. So it's truth do historical fact-finding, but it's also reconciliation. Because, brothers and sisters, I just, we need to have reconciliation. People need to learn how to forgive. You know, I think of Nelson Mandela um, forgiving his jailers, forgiving the South African state. And look what it yielded. It yielded the transformation of his country from a racist state into a multicultural state based upon one person, one vote, 
and he did it without firing a shot. It's not weakness, it's power. How was he able to voluntarily persuade the South African state? It was through the sheer force of will. That's certainly something that we can learn. And then he had a very successful term, and South Africa certainly had its problems, um, and it has not been easy. But the fact that they were able to end this system, it, it rivaled the end of the Berlin Wall and the fall of communism. No one thought it was going to be possible. And as much bad news as we have today, we can really celebrate the accomplishments of Nelson Mandela. He is a hero of mine, a statesman, a warrior, but most importantly, he's a peacemaker. And a lot of you are wondering, well, what about that book recommendation? Well, I got a really good book recommendation for you on Nelson Mandela. It is by one Nelson Mandela. It's called The Long Walk to Freedom, The Autobiography of Nelson Mandela. And it was written in 1994. I loved this book. I read it about four years ago, and it's just fascinating. It talks about his early life growing up. I think it has a fascinating description of the South African legal system because he was a lawyer. I'm proud to be a lawyer. A lot of the great leaders are lawyers. I'm not bragging, just saying. Um, talks about what I thought was very interesting, uh, the system of articling for lawyers, which was an internship for people prior to the time they went to law school. Basically, the South African legal system required you to um, essentially intern with a firm before you could even enter formal studies, which I think is a, another great idea we could learn from South Africa. It talks about his gradual transformation from a truly nonviolent um, civil resistor to his conclusion that unfortunately um, he did have to engage in acts of violence. In this case, it was property damage. I don't think he ever took a life, but he was uh, raising an army is one of the things he was convicted for, and he wasn't apologetic about that. But then it talks about his trial and the various leaders and people that helped him. One fascinating historical figure that I think is um, really interesting is this lawyer named Brom Fisher. Um, Brom, if you're listening to this, um, it's a friend of mine named Brom. I love the name Brom. But Brom Fisher was a white African lawyer who defended Nelson Mandela at great personal risk to himself and to his family. And I love that because I just think it just goes to show that I do think that there are these great examples of, of white people supporting black people, and black people supporting white people. You know, as, as Robert F. Kennedy said in his speech that we talked about in episode uh, five, that the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people want to live together in peace. And that is certainly true in the case of Nelson Mandela. He talks about his experience in prison and then his gradual transformation as he prepared to take over the reins of the South African state and after he finally was released in 1990. It's an incredible book. It's inspirational and you're going to learn a ton. In addition, I'll give the movie recommendation Invictus, which, as I said, is this story of the Springboks rugby team. And Morgan Freeman plays Nelson Mandela. And I think it really gets into the complexity of race in South Africa. So, friends, I don't think it can look even much worse than it does right now in our country in terms of the, the racial strife that we have. But I firmly believe that if we build a country based upon truth, accountability, forgiveness, and love, that we can transform this great country of ours from one of strife to one of incredible multicultural power based upon equality of all and the advancement of everyone. 
And Nelson Mandela showed that this is not an impossible dream, that this can become a reality if we base this reality on love and forgiveness and in the belief that we can build a beautiful multicultural country together. So friends, I hope you enjoyed this six Rockney cast. This was another intense one. Um, I was originally going to do my six Rockney cast on habits. It just didn't strike me as the right topic right now. And so I wanted to talk about Nelson Mandela because I don't think we can lose sight of our heroes. I do believe that I talked about the 20th century. I think he may be one of the greatest men that has ever walked the face of the earth. I really do believe that. I think he's better than Gandhi. He rivals Martin Luther King Jr. Um, he is he is end-all, be-all. So I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. I hopefully inspired you to learn. Hopefully you have a little bit more confidence that we can we can learn from their example. So thank you for listening to this sixth Rockney cast. Almost to that seventh episode. You know, they say that the seventh episode is the one that if you make it to that, you're going to make it as a podcaster. So we'll see. So my next podcast is we're going to shift gears a little bit and we're going to talk about habits, good habits and bad habits and everything in between. So join us next time on the Rockney cast.